This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. Friday afternoon. Hello, how are you today? Good to have you along. After the news headlines at half past 12 today, taking a look at the number of fires that have started by farm activities, farm equipment, machinery across the state in the last month, because it looks like the numbers are up. Uh, Just looking at last month, 39 fires were started by things like, you know, grain headers, slashes, tractors, things like that, uh, compared to 25 fires in November of last year. So we'll catch up with DFES and also... President of WA Farmers, John Hassel, and talk more about that. Also, some news coming out of COP28, you know, the big climate change conference, what to do about climate change that's on in Dubai. Uh, One bit of news yesterday coming out was that Australia, along with 16 other countries, have committed to promote the greater use of timber in construction. So we'll get into that and other news from COP28 shortly here on the Country Hour, 6 past 12. First up, though, news of a possible merger between energy giants Woodside and Santos came as a bit of a surprise yesterday afternoon. Both companies have stressed these discussions are preliminary and there is no certainty that any transaction will actually eventuate. Romano Salatena is the co-founder of Katana Asset Management based in Perth. He says there's certainly been some consolidation in the industry in the last few years. So if this merger does go ahead, it is in line with the recent trends. Going back a couple of years, we had four oil companies on the ASX, or we had BHP Petroleum, Oil Search, Woodside and Santos. We're now down to two, and if this you know, transpires as it's looking like it may then we'll, you know, effectively go from four to one oil company uh, on the ASX in in the space of, you know, three years. So what's the motivation for that? What's the imperative for them to look at these uh, combining forces? Yeah, look, that's the key question, isn't it? I think if you look um, internationally, in October we saw two mega mergers. ExxonMobil bought Pioneer for about $92 and Chevron sort of paid, you know, similar about $80 to $82 for Hess. Um, so we're seeing it as being part of a global trend towards, um, you know, fossil fuel companies becoming larger. Why are they doing this? Look, there are some reasons. So there is some rationale behind it. Part of it is because they do need to be able to fund decarbonisation properly and uh, and have the dollars to do that. Part of it is because they need to reduce the cost of capital. Uh, and one way to that is, is to become larger. And there's also some things around, you know, cost synergies and the like there. But also, as we're seeing, you know, uh, more recently in the media with, with projects getting delayed, for example, you know, Woodside and Santos have both got projects in Australia that are that under uh, review at the moment and, and under protest. These large oil companies can better allocate capital and better control timelines by having a wider selection of projects they can choose from. Uh, this correspondent on the text line, uh, Romano, says uh, this is about power of market slash leverage. Um, Woodside with a market cap of approximately $60 billion, Santos with $22 billion would create a company with significant sway, difficult for government to ignore. Do you think that's a factor here? Look, I probably think the opposite, to be honest. I think that one of the issues is this deal is going to come up against is that the ACCC will look very closely at exactly that, the power that it has. And I think, for example, you know, a merged entity on the initial numbers, Baron Jerry's done some work this morning and it shows that 
they'll probably have something like 50% of the WA market and something like 40% of the East Coast market. So I think I think the opposite is true. I think the ACCC will actually look very close at this transaction and either force the, you know, if the merger takes place, force some of those assets to be divested or put some pretty onerous operating conditions around those assets such that they, um, they don't have pricing power. Right. So this sort of rationalisation that we're seeing, though, I mean, can we read anything into this trend about the future of these these fossil fuel companies? I mean, is this an, an admission that they're worried about their own viability? Well, I think it's an admission um, that the landscape has changed. You know, as a simple example, the cost of capital, you know, what banks will lend to fossil fuel companies at is now higher than it was previously because of the, the ESG overlay and, and the things that the banks themselves need to deal with. So what that means is if you're a larger conglomerate, you can actually reduce your cost of capital because your your earnings risk and so forth is lower. So it's one way to mitigate some of the factors that are being placed upon them. But I think again, it comes back to this, you know, better being able to control your destiny. Like if, if you're finding that projects are being stalled as we're seeing in Australia at the moment, as a large conglomerate, for example, a merged Woodside Santos would be able to accelerate the work on the Alaskan oil projects or Gulf of Mexico. It just gives them that flexibility to be able to allocate capital where projects are actually getting traction and moving forward, and to have a you know a, a more global perspective in terms of, um, of of how they're allocating that capital. And would you expect that? I mean, you know, we, we are entering speculation territory here, but that's how this sure. ended up in the news anyway. Yeah. But uh, would you expect any change to, to things like staffing? I mean, there's obviously a lot of people work for both those companies in WA. They might be feeling a little nervous hearing this news. I think the history of oil, oil and gas companies is they're very good at managing uh, transitions and redundancies. I think if anything that, you know, most people who have ever been on the wrong end of a of a redundancy, you know, would, would say that um, they're overly generous in terms of how they facilitate those, uh, those transactions. So I think, you know, from that end, I, I don't think there would be, you know, I don't think staff should be nervous. I do think there are some modest cost savings. Like you have to understand... There's no overlap currently across the portfolio of Woodside and Santos assets. There's no projects they're both equity holders in. So I think from that end, there's there's limited scope to to you know to reduce redundancy or in, in terms of staffing. Where you will have some opportunities, of course, in corporate overhead, so in corporate office, and also in terms of marketing distribution, and the like. So there there will be some modest gains. I think the bigger opportunities actually is in um, adjacencies as opposed to redundancies. And by that, I mean there's at least three or four sets of assets where Woodside and Santos have neighbouring acreage and and, a, and that acreage is currently stranded. And I think, you know, an entity together could actually look at developing some of those assets where, for example, you could see some, some Santos gas that's stranded moving into uh, Woodside LNG assets and vice versa, say, up in Darwin. How many hoops would would a potential merger have to jump through before it was all ticked off? I think that's the big one, and I think it, you know it's a very sensitive area because you know the, the gas price does impact everything from households to efficiency and competitiveness of business. So, yeah, and indeed, there's someone know, on the text line just now texting in saying, "Well, what's this going to mean about our domestic gas supply?" That's that's the main concern, I guess, from the uh, consumer point of view. Exactly. And as I said earlier, you know, it, it, it looks like something like 50% of the WA market would be controlled by a combined entity and about 40% of the East Coast market. So that, they're big numbers and the ACCC would not be comfortable with that. Now, 
The ACCC has quite a number of options that they can look at. First, of course, they can just outright block the merger. That's unlikely to happen. What they could more likely do is force um, Santos and or Woodside to divest some of these assets to other parties to, to ensure there's competition. And a third option, which I think is quite a real option too, is to put some quite onerous pricing provisions around it such that you can't see you know, price gouging of, of any level. You mentioned you thought things would move quite quickly from, from this point, you know, a decision either way. When do you think we'll get some, uh, I guess, a better idea of whether this might eventuate? You know, I think they'll be working around the clock now. You know, they've, it's in the public arena. They have an obligation to keep the market fully informed. Uh, and so that means that they, do, they don't want to be in this operating environment for a long period of time. They want to be in an environment where they have to keep the market fully informed, you know, day to day. So I think you're going to see things move pretty quickly. I would have thought in the next couple of weeks, if we're going to get to the point of a proposal of some form that will see that uh, in terms of initial pricing. And then I think, you know, it might take another couple of weeks post that to sort of um, fine tune the terms. Romano Salatena, he is the co-founder of Katana Asset Management and he was speaking to Damien Smith. 14 past 12. This is the Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Local Radio, WA. Australia, along with 16 other countries, have committed to promote the greater use of timber in construction. Now, this is one of the major outcomes from yesterday's COP28, which is the annual meeting where member states of the United Nations get together to talk about the progress in dealing with global warming. Joe Prevedello is from the Australian Forest Products Association, and he is thrilled with the commitment. What we see is a coalition of 17 countries, including Australia, who have signed on and endorsed this statement to basically increase the use of wood in the construction sector. We know that wood is an excellent capturer of carbon and that it's excellent for the environment and that it's actually a really underutilised solution to helping Australia and the world meet its emissions targets and help fight climate change. So this really is a a great development. Do you think the policies that might follow this signing on will be all that different to the policies currently in place? Does it really mark any significant change? Well, the important thing about this announcement is that it's more recognition. And for so long, I think timber and wood and the role that it can play in climate change mitigation has been undervalued. But really now, with the momentum that we're seeing Uh, with the Australian government and governments around the world wanting to find really credible solutions to actually slow global warming, they're having to, you know, look a few pages deeper about what the solutions can actually be. And they're actually, I think, waking up to the fact that wood and timber and increasing its role in in construction is actually a really key way to fight climate change and reduce emissions. If the government was to make a big commitment to increasing the use of timber in uh, construction around Australia, do we have enough timber to supply that policy change or would we need to get trees in the ground in a hurry? Certainly we need to get more trees planted in the ground as soon as possible because we know that demand for timber and wood fibre is actually forecast to quadruple by 2050 globally. So There's a huge opportunity here, but we need to get more trees in the ground, not just to meet Australia's own timber and fibre needs and also now climate needs, but also 
to take advantage of the opportunities that might come internationally. With timber and wood fibre becoming increasingly popular around the world and the need to do it sustainably is really critical, Australia can be a leader here. So there are actually opportunities for us to export more resource as well that's sustainably grown and managed here in Australia. So really, we could be on the crest of a wave here of something quite special in terms of the demand for timber and wood fibre, which, as I said before, will only potentially be a boon for areas like Mount Gambia and the southeast of SA and the western part of Victoria. Yes, there's quite a few, like 17 countries that have signed on to this everywhere from places like Canada to the US to the Republic of the Congo to Fiji. Where does Australia rate internationally when it comes to forestry production? Well, Australia produces a fair amount of timber for its own needs, but we're not globally recognised as a huge timber producing nation. However, As I said, I think there is an opportunity here for Australia to position itself as such because we really are right up there with the best of the world when it comes to our regulatory framework, the way we manage our forestry and the way that we make sure that forestry and forest products and the way that they're produced works in a harmonious way with the environment. Not every country does that. So I think really this is an opportunity for Australia to strengthen its credentials on a global scale here. And yes, another key part of the agreement was sharing knowledge between these countries on how to best manage forestry. Does Australia have a lot to share in that regard? Absolutely we do. In fact, right now, the federal government is setting up a major new institute in Tasmania called Australian Forest and Wood Innovations in partnership with the University of Tasmania as a major new research centre. So we're actually going to be leading the world as well in the innovation space. And like I said before, we have an incredible amount of, I guess, credibility when it comes to our sustainable management practices and the way that we do forestry here. Much of the world, unfortunately, doesn't do forestry in a way that works harmoniously with the environment. You know, throughout much of the world, trees are harvested and they're not replaced. But in Australia, we replace the trees that we harvest, especially with regards to our native forest management. So really, I think we do have a lot to share with the rest of the world when it comes to making sure that we can encourage the use of timber and wood fibre. Joe Prevedello from the Australian Forest Products Association, and he was speaking to Elsie Adamo. 19 past 12. We're staying at the COP28 climate conference in Dubai for a little bit longer now, where food systems are under the spotlight. I mean, have a think about it. You've got tens of thousands of people descending on the Arabian Peninsula city, an area with limited food production. So what is everyone eating? Paul Newham leads a global food security organisation that contributed to the summit's sustainable catering strategy, which encouraged caterers to reduce meat, dairy and packaging. He's using an app to help the kitchen crews calculate the carbon footprint of their menus. What we've done working with the the presidency in the catering team is to 
be able to provide people choices. But at the end of the day, people have got to, they walk up and they order the food and and it's up to them. What the idea was, was really around trying to make sure that there's those options there. And those options then need to look at, in order to hit those kinds of targets, you've actually got to think a lot about ingredients. You've got to think a lot about where does that, where do those ingredients come from? What's the impact of those ingredients? You know, people were thinking about substitution. So we, we put in traditional things that would be served, you know, pizza, a burger, a, a salad bowl, you know, things like this. And then you look at them and you go, okay, this is how much is in, in each. And it's quite surprising sometimes. There's no good or bad ingredient. What there is, is sometimes practices which then can have challenging outcomes or they can actually provide really good opportunity. At COP26 in Glasgow, Australia's pavilion drew loads of crowds and they were mostly attracted to the coffee machine that was there. What's been on offer <laughs> what's been on offer this year at Australia's pavilion? Have they have they used food to draw in the crowds and and the events that have been relating to food? Do you think that they have been promoting sustainable agriculture in the way that they say they intend to? The Australian Pavilion is has got a great reputation at COP and they've upheld that. The coffee is very good and you always see a good buzz in the Australian Pavilion. Um, in terms of programming, there seems to be a quite uh, strong programming going on in the Pavilion and um, it is building towards Food Day, which is on the 10th of December. And so a number of different focuses are going to kind of dial up as we come closer there. You've got everyone here from all different parts of the world. So you're seeing different alternatives, different technologies. You're seeing conversations around how things are growing. At the expo site, which is where COP's being held, they actually have an urban farm. Uh, It's probably the first time I've seen a farm at COP where you've got food growing in the COP grounds. And so it's a big biodiverse organic farm that has everything from millet and quinoa growing in the sand. They're demonstrating different things like biochar and different technologies. They also have a vertical farm there. They have a mushroom farm. They've got a, a technology called Air Jewel, which is out of the US, which is taking water vapor from the air and then being powered by solar energy and then using that water to run the indoor farm. So there's some, some interesting kind of conversations which which are just really bringing the full cycle, I guess, of the food system out towards people. If you were sort of doing a report card on how things are going in terms of agriculture, food systems and climate, what's your sort of take so far on COP? Yeah, my take on COP so far is um, it was really great on day one to see 134 leaders sign the the UAE Declaration on Agriculture Food Systems and really put right at the front the connection between food systems and climate. It's just really set the stage. There was uh, a number of financial commitments made around agricultural research, looking at moving not just doing the research and the innovation, but moving it into action. So I think encouraging. Paul Newnham, Executive Director at the Sustainable Development Goal to Advocacy Hub, and he was speaking to Fiona Broom. 24 past 12, here on the Country Hour, on the ABC right across Western Australia, and of course on the ABC Listen app. An update from the newsroom for you isn't too far away in five minutes-ish at half past 12. Then checking weather conditions right around the state. And just before one, Danny Burkett's going to be long to go through the wool market, which is up a little bit this week too. Danny with the details just before one. 
First up, though, what levels of methane emissions come from sheep? And what role does genetics and feed sources play in influencing methane emissions? Well, they are just some of the questions New South Wales farmer Mark Mortimer is hoping will be answered in a new research project taking place at his Tullamore property. It's a project he's really excited about. Yeah, at the moment, so we've got a team from Armadale Uni and DPI on the farm and they're measuring methane output on 500 ewes. So they use a, a system called PAC, which is a portable accumulation chamber. And, yeah, I have to bring those sheep in and have them on feed in the yards the day before. So they're, um, you know, 12 hours on a, on a known feed source. Every hour, 12 sheep get taken off the hay and then rotate and come round through this measuring system. And they've got to be in the chamber for 40 minutes. So they get a, a methane oxygen and carbon measurement when they go in and they get another one 40 minutes later when they come out. Okay, so the measuring device is is measuring that uh, methane that's accumulating after having come out the the front end of the sheep? Yes, that's correct. So it's it's obviously all their burps. Um, And they're actually using three separate devices at the moment. So they're still in their, I guess, discovery phase. Um, So they're wanting to know which device gives the most reliable measures. And you said uh, a known feed source. Is it just based on the one feed source at the moment or are you trialling the emissions from different feed sources? Yeah, right. So at the moment it's just one. And obviously for the project they're looking to get methane measurements from 10,000 sheep. So that's a combination of industry resource flocks and commercial farms like mine. 5,000 of those sheep have to have a feed intake measurement with them as well. So that's a, you know, they're a little bit more on the feed but it's not specifically about different feed sources. So this project's about the genetics of methane emissions and methane at the moment, I've seen different papers that suggest that the heritability of methane somewhere between 10 and 25%, depending on the paper you look at and how many animals they had available to test, which means 10 to 25% of the variation we see in methane is due to genetics. Okay, so on that point, I was going to ask if this work could be used to develop a breeding value that people may use when it comes to selection, selecting for for less methane emissions. But if it's not a lot about genetics, then perhaps not? That's exactly what they're trying to do. So there's plenty of traits in sheep that have a lower heritability. Like I I breed for reproduction in my sheep, and the the heritability of reproduction is like 10%. So... Just because the heritability is low doesn't mean we can't make good changes in those traits. It just makes it a little, you know, we've got to be a little more careful, that's all. So even though it's, it's a, you know, most of the variation isn't due to genetics, genetics still does have an important part to play. And the beauty, if you make it a genetic change, the changes you can make are cumulative and permanent. So if we, you know, if we improve the genetics of our sheep now, we'll still get the benefits from that improvement in 100 years' time without doing any extra work. It's, you know, it's locked into the animal's DNA. And for you, Mark, what's the motivation to be involved in the project? I guess part of it always like new things. Um, So there's the, you know, the the interest, you know, it's a new device, new data, something we haven't looked at. What can it tell me about my sheep? Is there synergies between, you know, methane's a tremendous energy source, are the sheep that aren't capturing that methane not as productive? You know, so these are questions that I'd like to answer. It might be a really good win-win. 
And do you think, Mark, I mean, there's already a big spotlight on emissions from livestock, uh, fairly or unfairly, but do you think if that spotlight becomes more intense than uh, having data around what emissions may or may not be coming from your animals could be useful to you? Um, yeah, absolutely. The more we know, you know, the more you can combat, you know, fair or even unfair accusations. You know, it's, without the data, we don't have, you know, we, all we can do is have an opinion and you can't act on just simply an opinion. But sometimes you have to defend against opinions and the only way we can do that from our perspective is through knowledge and data. What do the sheep make of it all? Yeah, well, that's um, our sheep get used to um, coming in and seeing some novel apparatus in the sheep yards. I notice once they're in the chamber, they're really quite calm. So, you know, if I look at a small confined space from a human's perspective, it feels like I'm locked in. But typically what happens is while the sheep are in the pen and we're moving them around, they're a bit more stressed. The moment you pop them in the chamber, that chamber's actually separated us from them, not the other way around. So the moment they go in, they're actually quite calm. And you can walk down the front of the chambers and put your hand down to the front of the chamber and they'll all lean forward and try and sniff your finger through the perspex. Central West New South Wales farmer Mark Mortimer speaking to Angus Villey. It is half past 12 here on The Country Hour. Ali Colvin in the studio. What's in the headlines, Ali? Thanks, Belinda. A 15-year-old girl accused of stabbing another student at a Perth high school has been remanded in custody after a brief court appearance. The girl's alleged to have attacked a 16-year-old boy with an edged weapon during an incident at Kareen Senior High yesterday. The Premier Roger Cook has challenged Perth's Lord Mayor to come clean about his intentions to represent the Liberal Party in the next state election. Basil Zemplis was re-elected as Lord Mayor in October and hasn't publicly declared an intention to enter state politics. Mr Zemplis recently clashed with the Labor government over the closure of a crisis centre for women. The US Secretary of State, Anthony Blinken, says there remains a gap between Israel's intent to protect civilians and the results on the ground in Gaza. Israel is battling Hamas in the Gaza Strip's biggest cities, leaving hundreds more Palestinians dead. Almost two million displaced Gazans are struggling to find safe refuge amid critical shortages of food and shelter. Thanks, Belinda. More details in the news at one. Ellie, thank you for that update. 29 to 1 here on The Country Hour. And still to come, uh, Danny Burkett along with the wool market details just before one o'clock. Also talking about uh, fires that have been started, uh, well, just last month, DFES has put out some details just saying last month, so in November, there's been more fires started by farm machinery, headers and things, than compared to this time last year, so November of last year. We'll talk about that shortly. Just on the text, Weatherwally says this spring is hotter and drier than last and the preceding months were very dry. Also, November had some persistently strong easterly winds. All adds up to this November harvest being more fire prone. Last November was wet and cold up until the 18th due to the La Nina pattern. Thank you for that, Weatherwally. And I think that's got something to do with it. So we'll get into that Shortly, you can text through to 0448 to 1. Bob Tarr is at the Weather Bureau this afternoon. Bob, let's take a look at conditions around the Southwest Land Division. Yeah, sure. So um, especially eastern parts of the region, uh, much cooler today. So we have a strong ridge of high pressure uh, developing over western and uh, southern parts of the state uh, that 
was developing during the day yesterday, but continues to strengthen throughout the region today. So we have a quite broad uh, southerly flow uh, through most areas, and that is maintaining uh, milder temperatures. So uh, as a result, the warmest areas are up in northern parts of the Midwest. We're, we're up around uh, 30 degrees right now, but uh, many southern areas and eastern areas only uh, around 20 degrees right now. So pretty mild conditions uh, down at um, Pemberton, only about 16, 17 degrees right now. So yeah, fairly cool. Uh, there could be a few light showers down along the uh, south coast, mainly over eastern parts, but uh, for the most part, just dry weather. But uh, yeah, some cloud cover and um, pretty mild conditions. Uh, as we go forward, that ridge of high pressure will strengthen further over the weekend. And so as a result, winds will tend more easterly across the west coast. Uh, again, not really expecting much in the way of showers, maybe the slight chance of a shower east of Esperance tomorrow, uh, but then uh, some quite fresh and gusty winds, so it is going to raise the fire danger for parts of the uh, Perth Hills and extending down through inland uh, parts of the southwest as well, and then also up into the Midwest for tomorrow, uh, and then some, some locally elevated fire dangers again for uh, Sunday, some quite fresh and gusty easterly winds, still quite mild temperatures, especially uh, as you go away from the west coast. Uh, on Monday, might see a few showers uh, over the Esperance coast as a low-pressure system develops over the bite, but um, yeah, not really expecting much in the gauges there. And then uh, the ridge starts to break down, so we start to see a little bit of a uh, of a easing in the easterly pattern over the uh, region. Uh, but then we will see a new ridge strengthening uh, probably late in the period, around Thursday or Friday, uh, and increasing the southeast flow. So all in all, it looks like a pretty mild week, especially about the south coast districts, pretty close to normal around the west coast. And uh, aside from the chance of showers along the south coast, uh, no rainfall expected across the region. All right. Well, look at northern and eastern parts then, Bob. How's it looking today into the weekend and the new week? Yeah, so <clears throat> still pretty warm out through the interior, but uh, today will be the last day of the warm uh, weather through that region. And then um, this very strong ridge that's developing will uh, extend through there and we'll have a more of a southeasterly flow. So as a result, uh, much milder temperatures out through the interior. Uh, it's already started to tend milder through much of the uh Gascoigne in western parts of the Pilbara, and that ridge is going to extend uh, right up through the Pilbara as we go through the weekend. So uh, pretty strong surges of uh, southeasterly wind through the region. There's a slight chance of thunderstorms for inland parts of the Pilbara uh, during tomorrow, but then um, that dry air really overwhelms uh, the region. So, uh, And then it'll push, push right across the Pilbara coast uh, during um, Saturday night, Sunday morning. So it's really the the strength of this high pressure system is more like what you'd normally see in the cooler months, uh, where we get these really strong southeast surges pushing well into northern parts. But um, yeah, it's a uh, pretty unusual to get this type of pattern in December. Um, and then it will also help to uh, ease the shower and thunderstorm activity over the Kimberley. So uh, fairly widespread today and tomorrow, and then uh, contracting out of southern parts on Sunday. And then by the time you get out to uh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, it's really just the northeast part of the Kimberley that's going to be experiencing uh, some isolated shower and thunderstorm activity with the remainder of the region in a dry southeasterly flow. So it is going to be a little bit higher fire danger than you normally see this time of year in the north with those uh, dry and gusty southeast surges. Uh, it's also going to be very dry air. So um, some of the 
uh, humidity values in inland parts of the north and in the inland parts of the Gascoigne might be uh, below 5% in some afternoons next week. So it is going to be some very dry air across the state um, and really quite unusual for the absence of um, showers and thunderstorms that we'll see uh, next week. Um, otherwise, I mentioned that low pressure system around the Eucla um, could bring some showers, uh, especially on Monday and Tuesday, but uh, no other weather of uh, significance around the southeast of the state. Right. Back to this afternoon. Any warnings today, Bob? Yeah, sure. So we have a heat wave uh, warning, but that's uh, we're really towards the tail end of it at that point. That's over um, mainly northern and eastern parts of the state. And then just plenty of um, strong wind warnings around coastal parts. Thank you so much for going through those details, Bob. Appreciate that. 23 to 1. Now taking a look at the rainfall figures with Richard Hudson. Yeah, I'm going to flip it around too. We'll start in the Southwest Land Division forecast districts. There wasn't much, but in the southern coastal region was the only spot to get a tiny bit of rain and Beaumont West and the Duke both recorded five. And then in the northern and eastern forecast districts in the Kimberley, Nicholson had 35 mils, Yampi Sound six. And then in the goldfields, Kalgoorlie Boulder five, Norseman five. And then the only district other than those two to get any was Eucla. And Red Rocks Point had four mils. So Red Rocks Point is not too far from the WASA border, right down on the far south coast. And just east of there is Air. So that's just a rain gauge location. It's near a beach called Canadale Beach. And that recorded 88 mils. Um, I've just chatted to the guys at the Bureau and they reckon that may be not all that accurate. And I did actually touch base with the guys who run Mundrabilla Station and they were saying if they'd had 88 mils, they would be absolutely cock-a-hoop because in the last year, they've only had about 100 mils. It's been one of their driest on record. And just along the trans line there, some of the stations along there have been even tougher. They've had a number of dry years on the trot. So if 88 mils had fallen, they would be jumping around all over the place. If you're on one of those stations across the Nullarbor and you have had some decent rain, even if it's just on sections of the property, I'd love to hear from you. 0448 is 88 mils at air uh, the real deal or is uh, someone just been, you know, tipping out some some water in that neck of the woods? Who knows? 0448 922 I didn't know you knew the text number. Richard, very impressed this afternoon. Well done. It is 21 to 1 here on the Country Hour. Uh, Danny, along with the details of the wool market shortly. And as I've been mentioning, there's been an increase in the number of fires started by farm activities across the state just in the last month. So if we look back at the last month, the Department of Fire and Emergency Services says 39 fires were started by things like grain headers, slashers and tractors, compared to 25 fires in November last year. And in just the last week, 13 fires were started by harvesting activities. Pingerley Farmer and President of WA Farmers, John Hassel, says there does seem to be a lot of fires this season, but not all have been started by farm machinery. One fire I've been to was started by lightning, and a couple of days ago we were at one that was, it looked like it started next door to uh, Hobby Farmers' incinerator. So, uh, you know, there are numbers of reasons why 
fire start, and I certainly don't uh, agree with it being down to farmers' carelessness, which that kind of insinuates in that uh, in that post. No, we should make clear too, and we'll hear from DFES later that uh, they say the, the majority of pet farmers know what to do. They do the right thing, and of course, accidents do happen on these large operations. You can't um, foresee, uh, indeed, what what can take place, especially when busy times of the year are, are happening, like harvest. Um, so that's a good point to make as well. But just talk to us about the conditions that we're seeing this year, John, in terms of that dryness compared to last year, for example. How noticeable is is uh, the difference in, in weather? Well, I think it is drier this year. I mean, it, it's, uh, it was certainly a dry finish. We didn't get a, a good finishing rain. And so the season finished off more quickly. And I think when you're getting um, a lightning strike in a hay crop in October, that's pretty unusual. But that's what we had. That's a lot earlier than you might imagine. So that's possibly why we're seeing more fires, because it's such an early finish. Now, when some of these fires do happen from uh, farm vehicles, what do you see as some of the, the common causes? What are some of the things that uh, people need to watch out for when it comes to the possibility of, of farm vehicles causing fires? Well, striking machinery on rocks is, is a fairly common one and also failure of bearings on machines. So they're, they're fairly common ones. But I think a, a really important point that needs to be made, Tim, is that farmers have got... You know, not just one, but two or three fire units on their farms nowadays. And, you know, as I said, there was a fire two days ago up here. And the number of units on the job in a very short amount of time was absolutely remarkable and kept the fire contained because of that. So I think farmers are being very, very proactive in making sure that the safety of their communities is being ensured. The number of farm businesses less, and I think farmers are recognising that there's a lesser number of people who can you know, respond to a fire quickly so that they've, they've actually got to step up themselves. And I think farmers are doing that. We've got two ourselves. And I think it's an important thing that farmers have recognised that and are ready to go as soon as there's a fire because they, they recognise the risk. But also, you know, another point I guess that's important is that with reduced numbers of livestock, there's certainly more fuel, as pointed out in that uh, post by DFES, there's more fuel to create larger fire situations. And I think... With reduced livestock, that also makes a big difference. So farmers are aware of that too. Okay, so we are seeing that quite acutely um, this year. You think it's something that will only grow in potential risks on farms into the years ahead? Well, in terms of that particular one, we're doing our damnedest to try and save the live trade so it doesn't happen. But uh, yes, I'd say it's an increased risk. Pindley farmer John Hassel with Tim Wong C. 17 to 1 here on the Country Hour. Wayne Green is the DFES Great Southern Superintendent. He says the farming community's fire units and assistance when a fire starts is vital to getting the fires under control. Oh, definitely. And and without that farmer response, you know, a lot of our fires would escape and become quite large because they do escalate very quickly out in the cropping country with the conditions that we're experiencing. These kind of numbers that we're looking for, uh, those looking at this morning, those uh, 39 fires, 13 of them in the Great Southern, are they a cause for concern? The the 13 that we were concerned with is the, the period that they occurred in in, in a six-day period. So uh, just to see that spate um, increase dramatically um, last Monday and Tuesday for the, the six days leading in. Yeah. And of interest was, you know, that we, of real concern was a couple of injuries that were sustained during those fires that were probably avoidable by uh, utilising PPE. Rob's on text and makes the point that harvest started two weeks earlier 
And so with that, that extra time, that gives you an extra chance for things to happen, right? Oh, definitely. Um, but this time of the year, each year, I would say that everyone's out, flat out, harvesting regardless of the season. But what's unique about the situation that we're in this year is that we're coming close to Christmas and looking like having all of our harvest or majority of it uh, finished, which is, as I say, quite unique. John Hassel mentioned a couple of causes. Let's talk about what is happening out there, these these fires that are happening because of headers. What are you seeing? Yeah, look, there are always those unavoidable fires, you know, rock strikes, um, you know, as, as you mentioned, failed bearings. Uh, there are always going to be causes, and, and that's where we get our stats from. Every reported fire has a cause associated with it. So we haven't just grabbed general stats. We're, we've actually grabbed the stats focusing on farming practices at the moment, which, which have elevated. So... Uh, it's just a, a reminder to stay, remain vigilant. We're coming into the festive season. Everyone's going flat out to try and get that crop off and we wish them all a super safe harvest and just keep looking out and re- remain vigilant for that period. If though one of those fires does start uh, as, as part of the job, in terms of response, Wayne, what water bombing aircraft are around in these growing areas? So the, har- the grain harvest um, suppression fleet, that's... Um, funded by country operations in DFIS, and we bring that on each year through the, the warmest or the hottest part of the harvest, so the highest risk period of harvest, and they were brought on early this year to coincide with the early start to harvest. On top of that, we've got our normal high threat period where we do have our aerial suppression fleet. So at the moment, that's the full complement. So there's over 30 assets that are available for assistance around the state. And and this time of the year, they're mainly the southern part of the state because mm-hmm. that's where the risk remains. You feel confident about responding over summer? Yeah, it, it, as John said, you know, we, we see exceptional numbers from our farmer response, and he's dead accurate. The the level of firefighting equipment that farmers are now making sure that they're maintaining and, and having available for the, that response period when they're out harvesting, um, it, it's keeping our community safe. And it's just us continuing to work together and make sure that we get on top of these fires early. Our farms are getting bigger. You know, mm. we're starting to see, you know, Owned by fewer people. That's exactly right. And therefore, our communities are reducing in in size. Mm. And that means less availability for volunteering out in our our farming communities. So our farmers have got a lot on their plate. And Mm. they take it super serious in, in, in particular coming this time of the year there still won't be a mass exodus from the farms to go on their holidays. These families take it so serious that Mm. they will actually talk with their surrounding farms and neighbours. And they'll coordinate some of that. So there's always a presence in the community to look after those farms because summer's going to be a, a long, dry and risky period and, and everyone takes it serious. DFES Great Southern Superintendent Wayne Green with Peter Barr. On the text from Muzz, uh, there'll be a lot more fires in years to come as everyone exits the sheep industry as there'll be more machinery in the paddocks, meaning more fires. And, yes, that's exactly the point, Muzz, that was raised in that discussion too. Thank you for that. And Ian in Wagen says, there are more fires because there has been a lot more crop harvested in November than normal. There will be less in December. Thank you, Ian. The text zero double four eight nine double two six zero four. It's 13 to 1. Now, if you like to have a fish after work or on the weekend between Calberry and Augusta, You're being asked to voluntarily record your catch by using a new app called Fish Catch 
WA. The WA government hopes the data will support recovery efforts for species like groper and dewfish. But commercial fishers are saying unless the catch recording is compulsory, it won't be of much use. We were told that it would become um, mandatory, the the instruments of uh, legislation would be introduced in November, and that obviously hasn't happened, and now this has been released on a voluntary basis. We've spoken to the agency, they're saying there's no plans whatsoever for it to to become mandatory. So that's very disappointing for us, and then that means that the West Coast demersal fishery is going to remain at risk, because by the time... Um, people found, find out that what the real numbers are, it could mean that the recreationals and commercials have to take greater cuts again. Now, for the last seven or eight years, the, 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 the recreational sector has been catching above the, the safe limits, and that's why we had the, the, the concerning situation where action had to be taken last year. Each and every year, the commercials were under that limit, and yet we took a 50% cut. So we don't want to do it again because the community will end up with missing out on on their supply of fish. But it's important that everybody does their bit because we're all in this together. We've all got to make sure that we're we're measuring exactly what we're taking and that we're operating sustainably. But unless we end up with a mandatory tool like the one that was announced today, unless it becomes mandatory, it's simply putting the whole fishery at risk. Daryl Hockey from the WA Fishing Industry Council speaking to Joe Prendergast about the new app. It's called Fish Catch WA, which is part of the Service WA app. Wreckfish West is encouraging you to take a look at this app and give your feedback on it. Wreckfish West says recreational fishers have a great track record in supporting sustainability and conservation, with 80% of fishers willing to collect scientific data. Now, this app is the first of its kind in WA and an effective tool to help fishers voluntarily contribute to the data collection. And just on mandatory reporting, Wreckfish West says the overwhelming evidence demonstrates the only circumstances where mandatory reporting may provide useful data is where there is a high sustainability risk requiring real-time monitoring. And that's not the case with the West Coast demersal fishery. There are no commercial or recreational fisheries in WA currently with real-time monitoring. Mandatory reporting is not only not necessary for recreational fishers, but would detract from the simple pleasure of just going out and catching a feed of fish with a family enjoyed by thousands of hard-working West Australians. Uh, That is from Rec Fish West. And the West Coast Commercial Fishery is open or due to open on Saturday, December the 16th. And also wanted to let you know that WA fishers are going to be allowed to take their first abalone of the season tomorrow. Recreational fishers will be allowed to collect abalone between Moore River and Bustleton Jetty. And it's a small window of opportunity. It's between 7 and 8 o'clock tomorrow morning. Now, the Department of Primary Industries and Regional Development is urging fishers not to rush out to the reefs as there should be plenty of stock to last the hour. Compliance officers will be monitoring locations throughout the session. It is nine minutes to one, not far away from catching up with Danny Burkett to go through the wool market details. Hello, I'm Sally Sara. Join me for The World Today. We bring you the latest from Gaza, where many residents are struggling to afford food. 
Heat wave. Temperatures soar to the mid-40s in some parts of Australia. Emergency services on alert amid fears of bushfires. And texting for help. The National 1800 Respect Line to provide a text service so that people facing domestic, family or sexual violence can seek assistance discreetly. Those stories on The World Today. If you are a baker, a brewer or a winemaker, then yeast is your friend. And you probably get your yeast through uh, a retail or commercial channel, but did you know you can actually capture it naturally? Professor Ben Schultz is with the University of Queensland School of Chemistry and Molecular Biosciences. He says wild yeast can be a bit unpredictable to work with, but can bring unique tastes to things like beer. There's wild yeast everywhere in the environment associated with animals and and plants and in the soil and in the water. And it's really only a very small selection of yeast species which humanity has has managed to domesticate and use for things like beer and and wine and uh, bread production over the millennia. So as far as flavour goes, if you're utilising these other strains of yeast, can they be managed or can it be quite unpredictable? It, it can be very unpredictable. That's because if you like just look at um, at, a, at a piece of fruit, that's the grapes, um, then you, you, there's no way to easily tell what microbes are on that piece of fruit. And the, the different microbes, bacteria and yeast, uh, will then potentially give really different flavours and flavour profiles to a fermented beverage if you make make it using that wine or if anything else um, fermented like that beer. And so what um, we've done in, in our research over the last couple of years is to try and apart that to make that process a little bit more predictable, so to um, use microbiological techniques to not just take the pool of microbes that are present in a particular place in the environment, but to isolate the single yeast and bacteria and then to see which ones give really interesting tasty flavours and which ones are perhaps a bit ordinary and you wouldn't, you can just take it and leave it. And so then we can begin to use in a more targeted way the, um, the, the species that give really interesting flavours and, and begin to use them in beverage production. Because at the moment, if they do, say, end up in the process, one of these other strains that you, you're not sort of introducing yourself, could they be ended up in there accidentally, maybe spoil your brew? Yeah, they definitely could, yeah. And so that, that can certainly happen via production and, and um, being sterile when making homebrew or, or craft beer or beer at a larger scale is really important. Otherwise, yeah, things can get a bit nasty and not, not taste so good and, and then that spoils the, the product. For the wine production, um, by analogy, then spontaneous ferments or, or wild ferments uh, are now coming back in to be really quite popular again because of the extra nice dimensions to the flavour that you can get with those sorts of wines. But a big problem that you can have with those is that it's eventually the wine will, will get there and will taste probably pretty good, but it can be really variable in how long it takes for those ferments to proceed and finish and also in the exact flavour profiles that you get along the way. So there's lots of exciting potential, but it's a little bit risky if you don't understand what's going on. Yeah. So there are already examples of this wild process already being used? There are lots of examples of people using wild yeast to ferment wine and beer. But what's um, a little bit unusual and, and new and exciting is being able to really understand which are the species of wild yeast that are important and useful for the process and so to be able to control it. And as you say, that is uh, part of your research or your ongoing research that you're involved in and that you're presenting about to this conference in Adelaide? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so we had a, a really exciting project with Newstead Brewing in, in Brisbane over the last couple of years where they had a the, the great idea to see if they could make beer with 
youth from a particular place in Brisbane, right, to have that sort of sense of, of local physical connection to, to the country um, through the, the yeast that came from there to make the beer. Um, and so it took us a while to isolate and hunt through some wild yeast that we found on the University of Queensland campus in, in Brisbane. But we've managed to find some that um, actually produced some really quite tasty beers. And so it was great to be able to collaborate with that brewery to, to make some products. I've heard a lot about this is something that consumers are very much wanting these days, whether it's wine or beer, or they, they're loving this story of, uh, of a particular place, of story behind something. This is, I guess, another way of adding that very localised of-place element to, to what you're producing. Absolutely, yeah. And there's other really exciting research which has been presented at, at this uh, conference as well on about how the yeast and, and bacteria on grapes are really important for terroir. So it's not just the, the geography, the geology of the place, but it's also the microbiology that, that really contributes to that sense of place. Professor Ben Schultz, he's with the University of Queensland School of Chemistry and Molecular Biosciences, speaking to Selena Green. And he's just been in Adelaide as one of the presenters at the 37th International Symposium on Yeasts where he spoke about capturing wild yeast for beer brewing. Three minutes to one to the wool market now, and the eastern market indicator up 11 cents to close at 1,177 cents kilo clean, and the western market indicator up 16 cents to finish the week on 1,305 cents a kilo clean. Danny Berker, what did you make of this week's market? A very good week in wool across the three centres this week, whereas in previous weeks, the medium, micron, merinos um, have enjoyed good lifts. We've actually seen the fine end enjoy the better end this week. 17 micron was quoted roughly 80 clean dearer to close at 18.30. If we look back in the last three weeks, 17 micron has jumped $1.40 clean. So that's a big lift at that end of the micron, uh, at the micron range. 18 micron up 25, closing at 15.80. 19's also up 25, 14.45 on the close. 20 micron closed, 13.55 up 20. 21's up 15, 22's up 10, 13.35 for a 21 and 12.85 for a 22. Pieces and bellies, again, across the board, regardless of VM, regardless of micron, 10 to 15 dira. Oddments, merino locks that fell 20 last week, regained that 20 uh, this week. The crutching stains plus 10, lambs again firm on the longer lambs, but the shorter lambs are again struggling. As I said last week, 30 mils and lower are struggling in the market, but the balance uh, above that are doing very well. So a very positive market across the two days in Sydney and Fremantle and the three days in Melbourne. And most of it or all of it heading to China, Danny? I would suggest uh, China, China, China with some um, Indian business in the mix there as well. But if we look at the major buys, Tech Wool Trading, Morris, TNU and Endeavour Wool Exports making up the top four. We have had mellower in that top bracket in the last three weeks. As they've dropped out, we've seen another Chinese company come through, Endeavour Wool Exports, where most of that will go. So that was a very good result to see them jump up. Tech Wool Trading, as always mentioned, largest, the second largest in the Crossy market second largest in the oddment market and the largest in the skirting market. So tech will again be the wool market at this stage. All right, let's take a look ahead. Uh, what have you got? Yeah, interesting for next week, over 50,000 bars and normally um, the market gets a touch cautious when we see that volume, but important to look at the composition. Uh, the crossbred market in the last probably two months has lifted from a very low base. So the majority of that lift in offering is the crossbred. So it's a three-day sale in Melbourne. 
as I said, the crossbeds will be the main sort of um, lift in that market. So Merino combing wool, not much different to this week. It is one o'clock. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.